0: It's just gone 3 a.m. on the 30th of December 2002, in Camden, North London. Christmas week is drawing to an end. London is getting ready for the New Year festivities. But for a homeless man, rooting through the bins at the back of the College Arms pub on Royal College Street, there's little to celebrate. Living on the streets in London is never easy, but at this time of year, it's harder than ever. Last night, the temperature dropped below freezing. Tonight, he reckons it's just as cold. He can feel it in his bones, a deep chill that he can't shake off. Not even with the alcohol he's scavenged from unfinished drinks left outside pubs. Earlier, the streets were filled with revelers. Some of them were even moved by the Christmas spirit to hand out a bit of cash to the homeless people they encountered. But most just looked the other way and got on with having a good time. Still, that's better than the abuse and violence he sometimes faces. Most of the partygoers have gone home to their beds now. You can just about remember when he had a home and a bed to go back to. That was a long time ago, a mile away across the water in Ireland. He always thinks about his family at this time of the year, though he hasn't spoken to them for decades. He wonders how they're doing, and if they ever think of him. Better if they don't, he decides, as he continues rummaging. If his pa could see him now, God knows what he'd have to say about it. He usually gets a good haul from pub bins, especially those with a restaurant. At the end of the day, they throw out the kitchen waste. The food they can't sell anymore, stale bread, surplus meals, more than just scraps if he's lucky. He once found a whole cooked chicken, virtually untouched. He'd heard the local council has got behind on refuse collection. The bins should have been emptied yesterday, but are full to overflowing instead. The swing lids don't even close properly. On the plus side, that means he doesn't have to reach down inside the bins to find something. The rich pickings are just lying there on top. Downside is, the rats may have beaten him to it but he's looking for things that are wrapped up in plastic bags or even sealed inside containers. With any luck, he'll find something untouched. He feels a twisting hunger in his gut. The smell isn't exactly appetizing, but he's used to it. He's learnt to sniff out the tasty morsels in amongst the rotting waste. A distant street light casts a faint glow over the rubbish as he searches through it. The light glistens on discarded bottles and gives the black bin liners an eerie sheen. Suddenly, he sees a promising bundle, tied up in a black bin bag. From the shape of it, he thinks it must be two whole fish. Two big salmon, he reckons. He lifts the bundle eagerly and takes it away from the bin, closer to the light. As he snaps open the ties and pulls away the plastic, He sees that the bundle doesn't contain two fish after all. Instead, he's looking at unmistakably human remains. To be precise, he has in his hands the lower parts of two human legs. The man crosses himself and drops to his knees, placing the bundle in front of him on the ground. He takes off the leather cowboy hat that he got from a clothes bank at the local homeless shelter and begins to pray. I'm John Hopkins and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential, the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects and sort the truth from lies. There will be twists and turns along the way Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded killers as we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. the homeless man's gruesome discovery is called into homicide command at New Scotland Yard. It's been a quiet week up to now, but all that is about to change. Detective Brian Hook is part of the team that goes to Royal College Street to investigate. The first task is to verify that what has been found is in fact human remains. It certainly looks that way to Hook, but before a homicide investigation can proceed, This will need to be formally confirmed by a medical expert. Home Office pathologist Dr. Freddy Patel is quickly on the scene. He's in no doubt that what they're looking at are parts of the human lower leg, but a preliminary visual examination fails to find any distinguishing marks that might help the police identify the victim. Just as Dr. Patel is bagging up these remains to take them back to the mortuary at St. Pancras Hospital, Detectives call him back over to the wheelie bin. Directly beneath the spots where the first bag was found, they found a second black bin bag, of the same type, tied up in the same way. Inside are more body parts, this time a right arm and part of a torso. As yet, no head or hands, which would help with identification. But they have enough to know that the victim is female. A murder inquiry is now underway, led by DCI Ken Bell. Detectives set up a mobile police station so that they can run the operation close to the scene. There is already a police cordon around the bins at the back of the pub. This is now widened to include a much larger area, as Bell and his team consider the possibility that there might be more body parts in other bins nearby. With that in mind, Camden Council is contacted and told not to collect any rubbish from the area that day. An army of police officers is brought in and given the grim task of sifting through the refuse. Every single bag of rubbish within the cordon must be opened up and examined. They look into the drains too, using specialist equipment and cameras, while a team of police divers search a stretch of Regent's Canal, which runs at right angles to Royal College Street. A search unit is also sent to the landfill site used by Camden Council in case other remains have already been taken away. There are hundreds of tons of rubbish for the officers to comb through. It's painstaking and ultimately unrewarding work. As it turns out, it's less than 200 metres from the first site where more body parts are eventually discovered. In nearby Plender Street, police find a torso, a right arm, a left arm, and a foot. As DCI Bell will later observe, they'd been dismembered very carefully and probably with a great deal of precision and a great deal of thought. For his colleague Brian Hook, the method of disposal reveals a logical mind at work. The smaller the bits, the easier it is to dispose of it, he points out. These body parts are sent to Dr. Patel for further examination. When his results come through, they reveal a shocking development. The body parts that have so far been recovered, in fact, come from two separate bodies. The police are dealing with a double murder. Detective Hook speaks for many when he says, it's double the shock. It means that another human being has gone through unspeakable things. The area under police cordon includes the College Place Estate, blocks of flats providing social housing for people on low incomes. Many of the residents have lived there all their lives. Others are relative newcomers. Someone must have seen something. The police make door-to-door inquiries on the estate, asking people if they have seen anything or anyone suspicious. At the same time, the homicide team's intelligence officers search police databases for possible suspects. They're looking in particular for men with a record of violence towards women. Significantly, both lines of inquiry produce the same name, Anthony John Hardy. Many of his neighbors remark on Hardy's strange behavior. He kept odd hours. A stream of different women was seen going to his flat at all hours, Loud noises could often be heard coming from the flat in the middle of the night. It sounded like drilling, they said. But who does DIY in the middle of the night? There were even reports of screams coming from the block where Hardy lives. One man says that he saw Hardy sitting on the bench across from the estate, staring at his own flat as if he was frightened to go back there. This witness has a dog. He says that every time he took the dog out, he would pull him towards Hardy's door. Obviously, he could smell something that the man couldn't. Other neighbors noticed that Hardy had taken to keeping his windows open, even when it was freezing outside, and that he would constantly burn joss sticks. Some say they saw Hardy carrying bags around the estate, talking to himself. At the same time, Hardy's file reveals a history of mental illness and antisocial behaviour, as well as car theft and driving under the influence. There have also been charges related to violence against women. But the police hadn't been able to make any of that stick. Hardy's name produces an icy feeling in the pit of DCI Bell's stomach. He remembers him well. It was just under a year ago that he had Hardy behind bars on another matter. That time he was forced to let Hardy go. Could that decision have cost two women their lives? DCI Bell receives authorization for what he terms proactive entry to Hardy's flat. In other words, license to break down the front door. But when the police get to the address, they find the door ajar. As they step inside the flat, an eerie silence greets them. It seems that Hardy is not at home. But there is ample and unsettling evidence of his earlier presence. The walls are decorated with Hardy's bizarre artworks, naively executed symbols, figures and faces, interspersed with seemingly random letters and words. Here and there, a whole phrase jumps out, for example, Hey little mama. Elsewhere a name is visible, such as Sarah. As well as abbreviations like AM, FM, LW, UHF. More often than not, the meaning is unclear. Perhaps they are coded messages, or perhaps it's all just incoherent nonsense. The detectives can't help being reminded of the classic serial killer's den from any number of Hollywood films, although Hardy's daubings are oddly colourful whereas the cliché is for a dark, monochromatic scrawl. The overall effect is unnerving, chilling even. It's like having a glimpse inside a highly disturbed and obsessive mind. One of the officers on the team is Detective Sergeant Alan Bostock. He will later remember, The flat itself was quite unkempt. It was not a pleasant place to be or live. The kitchen, for instance, is a mess. Food has been left out to go off. There are dirty dishes all over the place. This is in contrast to the living room, where everything seems to be in perfect order. Pride of place is given to two televisions in the centre of the room. The arrangement strikes Bostock as a kind of shrine. But a shrine to what? A clue is provided by a library of around 70 VHS tapes near the TV. It will be some poor officer's job to watch those tapes. Bostock has an uneasy feeling about the kind of material they will find. Bostock is called out of the living room by another officer who's standing in front of a locked door. An item of clothing, a pair of tracksuit bottoms by the looks of it, has been rolled up and placed along the bottom of the door. DS Bostock can think of no reason why he would do that, other than to seal in an unpleasant odour, perhaps. It gives the go-ahead for the uniformed officers to break the door down. Bostock was right about the smell. The unmistakable stench of decomposing flesh hits him immediately. There's a desk against one wall and a wardrobe in the corner. The bed has an armchair placed on top of it, as if it has been cleared from the floor to make space. Bostock now sees the object that the floor has been cleared for, a package wrapped up in black bin liners and tied with twine, just like the bundles they found behind the College Arms pub and in Plender Street. A hacksaw and some knives have been neatly placed on top. From the shape and size of the package, DS Bostock guesses that it contains a human torso. His guess proves to be correct. The homicide detectives of Scotland Yard are now in no doubt. Anthony Hardy is the man they're looking for. So far, they know he has killed and dismembered two women. And they have no idea where he is. On the 1st of January, 2003, Scotland Yard launched their biggest ever manhunt. The decision is taken to release Hardy's name and photograph in view of the substantial risk He poses to the public. He's described in newspaper accounts as an unemployed loner in his fifties. One photograph shows a bearded, grinning Hardy waving at the camera as the flash goes off. A more recent screen grab from CCTV footage captured after his disappearance reveals that he has shaved off his beard. He's now wearing a black NYC baseball cap and a long black leather overcoat. His expression is no longer smiling. It's clear from the images that Hardy is a big, imposing man. Detective Chief Superintendent Dave Cook tells reporters, as much as we would wish to speak to him in connection with the murder, we have also naturally, because of events that have taken place, got to be concerned for his safety and well-being. He goes on to say, if you look at the nature of the crime that has taken place, Clearly, the person responsible for this matter must be treated with extreme caution and considered to be dangerous. So who exactly is Anthony John Hardy? And what has led him to become Scotland Yard's most wanted man? Hardy is born in Burton-on-Trent, Staffordshire, on the 31st of May, 1951. He does well at school and goes on to study engineering at Imperial College London, after which his life seems to go in a conventional direction. He lands a managerial job and in 1972 marries his university girlfriend, Judith. The couple have four children and emigrate to Australia in 1981. Life is looking good for Anthony Hardy. He's sociable and popular, the life and soul of the barbecue circuit. By all accounts, He's the perfect father, too, often taking the kids out on his boat. But Hardy's dark side is beginning to reveal itself. For instance, when he boasts to his wife about his infidelities. And when he is suddenly made redundant, he develops severe mood swings. By now, he is drinking heavily and using drugs. There are reports of domestic violence culminating in 1982 in a brutal attack on his wife. Hardy freezes a bottle of water and clubs Judith on the head with it while she's asleep. He then drags her into the bathroom where he tries to drown her in the bath. Hardy is only prevented from killing her when one of the children wakes up and interrupts him. He's arrested, but his wife refuses to press charges and a criminal case is dropped. Instead, Hardy spends 10 days in a Queensland psychiatric ward, and while there, he admits to a psychiatrist that he froze the bottle deliberately and had been planning to murder his wife for weeks.
1: Elevate every morning with Tommy John Second Skin Underwear
0: Soon after, the family returns to England, only for Hardy and his wife to divorce in 1986. Now an embittered alcoholic, he stalks his wife, at one point kidnapping her and even concealing microphones in her house. His wife takes out a restraining order, which Hardy breaks, landing him in prison for 12 months. On his release, Hardy's lifestyle spirals further into chaos, now homeless, He is charged with indecent assault in 1988. The victim is an 18-year-old sex worker. However, as with the attack on his wife, the charges are dropped. It's worth bearing in mind that Hardy is a physically intimidating man. It's likely that these women choose not to press charges out of fear of what he would do to them in the future. There is one woman with whom Hardy has a positive relationship at this time. In a 2003 interview with the Ipswich star, Maureen Reeve of Thetford, Suffolk, would describe Hardy as her best friend. She reveals that he often turned up at her house unannounced and would stay with her for days. Reeve insists their friendship was platonic, with Hardy calling her his social worker. Reeve describes him as intelligent and jolly, though she does admit to witnessing glimpses of his darker moods. She tells how he would become depressed and not speak to anyone for hours. She claims, however, that he never frightened her or hurt her. There are flashes of temper, though, when Hardy raises his voice in anger. In the interview, she reveals one of Hardy's obsessions. Anthony was obsessed with serial killers, and we talked about them on several occasions. We had long discussions about Jack the Ripper, and Anthony thought he had a brilliant mind. He reckoned Jack the Ripper was a very clever bloke because he murdered all those prostitutes and never got caught. On the 2nd of January 1989, Hardy steals a car and takes it for a high-speed joyride along a motorway with the police in hot pursuit. Hardy, who has been drinking heavily, loses control of the vehicle and crashes. He's sentenced to another year in jail. After his release, Hardy gravitates to London where he spends time in a homeless shelter. His antisocial behaviour comes to the attention of the staff. He was known as the Bone Crusher, says one worker. That was his nickname in the hostel. He'd creep up behind people and grab them and just squeeze until you could hear bones cracking. In May 1995, Hardy is sectioned under the Mental Health Act and diagnosed with bipolar disorder. By 2002, Hardy is living in his college place flat in Camden. In January that year, local police receive a call from one of the neighbors complaining that Hardy has painted threatening graffiti on her front door and poured acid through her letterbox. Sergeant Nick Spinks is one of the officers sent to talk to Hardy. He looks around the flats and finds a locked door. Hardy claims the room belongs to a female flatmate who is away, and he doesn't have the key. Spinks is unconvinced. He searches Hardy's jacket, where he finds a key which opens the door. Nothing can prepare him for the sight that meets his eyes. I looked into the bedroom, and there was this naked corpse on the bed with a towel over its head. When I looked back at Mr. Hardy, he was sat down, he was sweating profusely, his mood had changed. He denied all knowledge that he knew anybody was in there, and at that point, he was arrested for murder. Spinks notices blood on the wall, coming from a wound on the dead woman's head. Her blood is all over the bed too. He finds the victim's clothes, which include a top with blood on the inside of its hood indicating that she was dressed when she received the injury. he can only assume she was undressed either when she was unconscious or more likely after death. The circumstantial evidence against Hardy appears conclusive. First, there's the fact that the body was locked inside a room and Hardy tried to conceal its existence from the police. On top of that, police find a bucket of warm water on the floor of the bedroom showing Hardy's intention was to clean up the scene. The police also find a bite mark on the victim's thigh. Most incriminating of all, there's the evidence that she had been undressed and posed after death. The victim is identified as 38-year-old sex worker Sally White. Her body is sent to Dr. Freddie Patel for a post-mortem examination. The same pathologist who will be responsible for examining the body parts found almost a year later the detectives are stunned when Dr. Patel's findings come back. Despite the fact that he was fully informed of all the suspicious circumstances surrounding Sally White's death, Dr. Patel gives the cause of death as coronary heart disease. In other words, natural causes. In Dr. Patel's view, bruises to Sally White's mouth and nose were the result of vigorous attempts at mouth-to-mouth resuscitation He rules out any possibility of asphyxiation. Understandably, the police request a second post-mortem. But as it is also carried out by Dr. Patel, it confirms the finding of the first examination. The coroner's inquest into Sally White's death lasts less than 15 minutes. The coroner concludes there is no evidence of foul play or third-party intervention. The police have no choice but to drop the investigation, despite the fact that every officer on the case believes that Anthony Hardy is responsible for Sally White's death. Instead, Hardy is charged with criminal damage to his neighbour's door. He pleads guilty and is assessed by psychiatrists. Deemed to be a suicide risk, he is once again sectioned under the Mental Health Act and held at St. Luke's Hospital a secure psychiatric unit in Muswell Hill, North London. While there, he is treated solely for his alcoholism. Although some staff admit to finding him creepy, he is considered to be a model patient and allowed out on day release unsupervised. On one of his days out, he takes a train to the Midlands where he allegedly rapes a sex worker. Like many sex workers subjected to violence from their punters, She does not press charges. On the 4th of November, 2002, Hardy is released from St. Luke's. For some reason, the Camden Mental Health Trust fails to notify the police that they have let him out. It is less than eight weeks later that a dismembered torso is found in his flat. DCI Bell, who was involved in Hardy's arrest over the death of Sally White, experiences a sickening sense of deja vu. This time, Bell is determined that Hardy will not get away with it. Forensic scientists use luminol, a substance which glows in the dark when it comes in contact with trace amounts of blood, to help them understand what went on in Hardy's flat. What they discover shocks them. As the lights are switched out, areas of glowing luminol show up all over the flat. In DCI Bell's words, the enormity, the absolute enormity of what that man did becomes so, so apparent. One of the detectives will describe the scene as an abattoir. A forensic psychiatrist will refer to it as Hardy's killing zone. So far, the police have found neither heads nor hands for the two victims, so they must use other means to identify them. The DNA of one of the women is found on the National DNA Database. She is identified as Bridget McLennan, a 34-year-old Camden resident. According to one of her friends, Bridget was a really nice girl. She was a good mum as well. But she fell on hard times and became addicted to crack cocaine, turning to sex work to support her habit. Hardy robbed her of her life, but he also took away her identity and her humanity reducing her to pieces to be bagged up and thrown away. But there is a photograph of Bridget wearing a white hat as if she's at a wedding. She's smiling for the camera. It's a reminder of the person she could have been, the life she could have lived, had things gone differently for her. Nothing shows up on the DNA database for the other victim. However, she's identified as 29-year-old Elizabeth Vallad through unique serial numbers found on breast implants. Originally from Nottingham, Lizzie moved to London where she became involved in sex work. Like Bridget, she too was a mum, and of course, somebody's daughter. In a TV interview, her mother, Jackie, will say, to never see her again, her beautiful face. No, you never come to terms with it. In a sinister development, scientists discover DNA traces of another woman in Hardy's flat. This woman is never identified. The evidence against Hardy continues to grow. The 70 VHS tapes are found to contain violent, hardcore pornography. Meanwhile, police are contacted by a friend of Hardy's who tells them that Hardy had asked him to pick up some photographs he'd had developed. The police retrieve two reels worth of photos. They are sickened by what they see. Hardy's porn collection was bad enough, but this is worse. There are 44 shots showing two naked women arranged in various poses in the bedroom. The women's faces are covered, either by a baseball cap or a red devil's mask. The photographs were examined by a pathologist whose opinion is that the two women were dead when the photographs were taken. Because Hardy was careful to conceal the women's faces, it's impossible to be sure that they are Bridget McLennan and Elizabeth Falad The police, though, are in no doubt. In the course of the investigation, Scotland Yard detectives review hundreds of hours of CCTV footage. They start with the cameras close to the bins where the first body parts were found. Hardy is seen discarding a number of black bundles. You wouldn't guess from the nonchalant way he drops the bags into the bin that they contain parts of a human being. Hardy needs medication for diabetes, but has left his current supply in his flat. Police believe that he will soon be forced to go to a hospital for more, so they focus on CCTV from local hospitals. The strategy soon pays off. One of the earliest sightings of him is from University College Hospital Accident and Emergency Department. He's shaved off his beard now, but can be seen wearing the very same baseball cap shown in the photographs of the dead women. After waiting for four hours, he panics and runs away when staff ask him for an address. For the next few days, Hardy is on the run, living on the streets, sleeping in churches and doorways. Because of his urgent need to get medication, Please do not believe he will go far from the area.
1: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially, no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
0: On the 3rd of January, retired police officer Mike Burrows is sitting in the smoking room at Great Ormond Street Hospital for Children with his son. By now, Hardy's picture has been all over the front pages of all the newspapers. As they get up to leave, a big, bespectacled man wearing a long leather coat and a black baseball cap comes in. Mike Burroughs' son nudges his father and whispers, it's him, isn't it? I think so, says Burroughs. They make their way to the security office where they find the guard reading an article about the Camden murders in his paper. This guy's here, says Burroughs, pointing at Hardy's photograph. He's sitting downstairs. The guard dials 999. Meanwhile, Hardy knows something's up. He saw the look that passed between father and son. He makes a run for it, hiding in the bushes outside the hospital. When the police arrive, he puts up a fight. The uncontrollable violence of his nature comes out, as well as his sheer physical strength. One officer is knocked unconscious, and another has an eye dislocated. These are trained policemen who would have been armed with restraining equipment. Imagine such savagery directed against unsuspecting, unarmed women, a fraction of Hardy's size and weight. Eventually, one of the officers manages to hold him down and get the cuffs on. Anthony John Hardy is under arrest. Hardy is taken to Collindale Police Station in North London where he is charged with the murders of Bridget McLennan, Elizabeth Vallad, and, at long last, Sally White. The evidence against him is overwhelming. There's CCTV footage of him disposing of the body parts and even of him buying the heavy duty bin bags he used. Police also have the photographs of the dead women which were taken inside Hardy's flat, their faces concealed by a baseball cap and devil mask, both belonging to Hardy. The camera that those photographs were taken on is found in Hardy's possession when they arrest him. Hardy is interrogated by Detective Sergeant Alan Bostock. To every question Bostock puts to him, Hardy answers, no comment. Even when he has shown the shocking photographs of the dead women, he doesn't react at all. Bostock is desperate to know one thing above all, where Hardy has disposed of the remaining body parts. The frustrated detective makes an impassioned plea. You're the only person, I believe, that knows where those heads and hands are. Your opportunity, please, to tell me now, so I can recover them for the family, not for me. Mr. Hardy, what can you do for me? Hardy's answer is the same. No comment. Hardy's trial takes place at the Old Bailey in November 2003. On the first day, he surprises everyone by pleading guilty to all three murders. Having previously claimed that the women died as a result of consensual BDSM that went wrong, Hardy now admits that he strangled them. He is given three life sentences. After the trial, it emerges that on the 30th of December 2002, Hardy went to the Royal Free Hospital in Hampstead, North London, and left a note in the chapel which read, Please, pray for Tony Hardy's immortal soul. So perhaps it's predictable that Hardy will claim to find God while in prison. However, he does not find it in him to tell the families of Bridget McLennan and Elizabeth Fallad where their loved one's missing remains are. He even hints in a letter to a woman he is corresponding with that, there is much more than anyone imagines to be revealed, implying that there are other victims that the police don't know about. Surely, if he is sincere about his religious faith, he wouldn't hesitate to give a detailed confession of any other crimes. Throughout his life, Hardy has shown himself to be highly manipulative, even fooling psychiatrists into thinking he posed no threat. It seems likely that his newfound belief in God is another attempt to manipulate those he considers to be his intellectual inferiors. One question remains to be answered. Why did Hardy kill? There is no doubt that he was a psychologically disturbed man, obsessed by violent pornography. In 1995, he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. But as forensic psychologist Dr. Julian Boone points out, bipolar disorder does nothing to explain what went on in the Camden killings. In the view of Dr. Tony Maiden, Professor of Forensic Psychiatry at Imperial College London, Hardy had a psychopathic personality in addition to other mental health problems. He explains, Once someone with his manipulative personality has a mental illness as well, it's a very ready opportunity to manipulate the system while concealing his true nature and his true motives. He describes Hardy as having an untreatable personality disorder. For prosecuting barrister Richard Horwell, Hardy's motivation is chillingly simple. He decided to kill these women in order to photograph them in various positions which he had arranged when they were dead. He argues. In 2010, a High Court judge rules out any possibility of parole by imposing a whole life order on Hardy. He will spend the rest of his days behind bars. And so, Anthony Hardy dies in prison of sepsis in 2020, aged 69. One final footnote to the case. In 2012, Pathologist Dr. Freddy Patel is found guilty of misconduct and banned from practicing as a doctor after what The Guardian newspaper describes as a catalogue of errors dating back more than a decade. His error in the case of Sally White allowed Hardy to go on to kill two more women. The possibility that he killed even more cannot be ruled out. Next time on Scotland Yard Confidential. London in the roaring 20s. A daring thief is targeting the homes of the aristocracy. He dresses like a gentleman and handles himself like an acrobat. This is Robert Augustus Delaney, cat burglar. He has the good looks and charm to befriend wealthy women. But once he's worked his way into their affections, He has no scruples about stealing their most prized possessions. We join the young detectives who are hot on his heels. But will his breathtaking agility keep him out of their reach? Or will their dogged determination win the day? And what are the dark secrets of Delaney's past that lie behind his glamorous exterior? Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Warrow for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant, Roger Morris. Written by Roger Morris. Hosted by me. John Hopkins Supervising Editor Kevin Pham Sound Design by Matthias Torres-Sole Sound Supervisor Tom Pink Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer Mix Master by Kian Ryan Morgan Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley